Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. I was on a trip in Kansas City with my wife teaching at a conference when a friend burst into the room and interrupted my lesson. I remember the serious look on his face uh, when he took me to the side and said, Bruce, your house has been broken into. You've been robbed. My initial reaction was denial. No, that's not possible. But sure enough, someone from church had driven by my house and knew I was gone and saw my side door swinging in the wind. Now, the people who broke in didn't take much. In fact, that was kind of insult to injury. They looked through my stuff and didn't decide that they even wanted it. Now, they did steal my car, though the police found it parked into a tree not too long afterwards. Though not a lot was taken, you know, it was a serious thing to be robbed. I remember the feeling of like being violated. If the people had just actually asked for what they ended up taking, which really wasn't all that much, the car was very cheap, I probably would have just given it to them. But being robbed is such an intrusion and it leaves this pit in your stomach. It's a horrible feeling. In our text for today, Malachi 3, 6 to 9, we will see that this is how God feels. In fact, I'll bring this out in my translation of verse 8. The participle is used, you are robbing me. Like it's happening in real time. To say this is how a person is treating God is a serious accusation. And we'll catch something of the shock value by starting in Zechariah chapter 1. Malachi was likely composed sometime in the mid-400s BC, and though we're not entirely sure if it predates or postdates the reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah, which start in Ezra chapter 7, it does likely come after the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah, which are recorded in Ezra chapter 6. These were the prophets who worked with Zerubbabel and Jeshua as the people were allowed to return to the land. Zechariah begins his prophecy in chapter 1, 3 to 6. It reads, Return to me, says Yahweh Sabaoth, and I will return to you, says Yahweh Sabaoth. Do not be like your brothers, to whom the former prophets called, saying, Thus says Yahweh Sabaoth, turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear and did not listen to me, says Yahweh. Your fathers, where are they? And do the prophets live forever? Surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded by my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? And then they returned. Again, we can't be sure about the exact timing, but Yehud, the restoration community of Israel living under Persian rule back in the land, experienced something of a revival, national repentance under the ministry of Zechariah. They hear this word, and so they return take God up on his offer. In Zechariah 1.3, return to me and I will return to you. But however long later, we then have this prophecy of Malachi. And he says in so many words, uh, it didn't stick. Keep your eye out for how our text alludes to or even cites Zechariah 1 as I read it, starting in Malachi 3.6, going to verse 9. For I, Yahweh, did not change. And you, sons of Jacob, have not stopped. From the days of your father, you turned from my statutes and did not keep them. Return to me and I will return to you, says Yahweh Sabaoth. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? But you are robbing me. And you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. 
You are cursed with a curse and you are robbing me, all of the nation. The previous section in Malachi has jumped forward in the biblical timeline with an eschatological excursus, a talk about the end times, predicting that in the future, a messenger will come who will clean house, as it were, bringing punishment to evildoers, and so there will be pure worship of the Lord. In our text for this episode, he returns to the situation of Yehud in the 5th century BC. Malachi has just finished predicting the destruction of sorcerers and adulterers in the future. But when he resumes his discussion of the present, the people are in a bad way. Whether the whole nation knew it or not, the revival under Zechariah had been undone, and the nation had slipped away from God. Again, Zechariah chapter 1 may be unfamiliar territory for many of us in 2022, uh, but since Zechariah and Malachi date so closely, it seems likely that Malachi's readers would have caught the significance of the illusion here. The citation that Malachi makes in 3.7 is prefaced by 3.6, For I, Yahweh, did not change. The problem in the relationship is not that God was capricious or got bored with the people and is always changing the way that he works. His posture of blessing the people for obedience and judging the people for disobedience remain constant. More than that, his commitment to keep his covenant promises remained unaltered. Now, I say that because some systematic theologies take Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change, or actually I just have it as the perfect I did not change, as a proof text for the doctrine of immutability, which often overlaps with impassibility, that God doesn't go through emotion but is unmoving in his essence. An evaluation of that idea is outside of our concerns here. Uh, But just let me point out that this sort of speculation about how the internal workings of God operate is a long ways away from Malachi's concern. When Malachi makes this statement, he means that God's purposes remain constant. We could take the Hebrew in the second half of verse 6 actually in a couple different ways. And I've tried to leave room for both in my translation, you sons of Jacob have not stopped. It could be that Malachi is saying that God doesn't change in the way he works, but neither has Israel stopped being Israel. They continue to be the same rebellious and stubborn people they have been since the days of their fathers. The dead idea is clearly present in verse 7a, from the days of your fathers you have turned from my statutes. Most translations, however, have something like, you are not consumed, and take the connective between these two clauses as, therefore. So, for example, the ESV has, for I, the Lord, do not change, therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. It is possible to take this conjunction as, therefore, though it is the normal copulative and that most frequently means and. In, in this interpretation, uh, Israel keeps sinning again and again, and the reason that the people don't stop being a nation is because of God's commitment to his covenant. Uh, both ideas are right, so it's not like we're in danger of heresy, but I'm willing actually to go out on a limb and say, I prefer, and you, sons of Jacob, do not stop, is the way that we should understand this. In any case, Malachi has come back from his detour in eschatology and the destruction of the wicked to talk about how Israel continues the sinful practices of their fathers. If we think of the history of Israel, there has been some serious times of apostasy. So this raises the question, uh uh-oh, what's Israel doing now? The explanation is given in Malachi 3.8. With most translations, I've put this as, 
will a man rob God? But you are robbing me. Uh, the Hebrew text has kava, which means rob. The verb only occurs one other time, actually, in Proverbs 22:23, which is talking about those who rob the poor, that the Lord will rob the soul of those who rob them. This understanding of the verb is attested to in three Greek recensions, Aquila, Symmachus, and Theodosian, as well as the Latin and Syriac. However, other Greek translations seem to translate metathesis of kava, that is a swapping of the letters, so that the actual word is deceive, akav, related to uh, Jacob, Yaakov. If so, this would be a play on words. They continue to be sons of Jacob because they continue uh, their actions of deception. This is an attractive proposal, but amending the Hebrew in favor of some Greek translations, uh, it's kind of a last resort. And since the Hebrew text as we have it makes good sense, let's just leave it as it is. Now, Malachi knows this is just a silly idea, the, uh, the concept of robbing God. So he begins by asking, can a man rob God? This reinforces the absurdity of their actions. So, uh, they would like to know, and here the repeated literary device of putting a question in the mouths of the listeners may have been actually a real question. What are we doing that amounts to robbing God? Malachi's answer, tithes and offerings. In the next verse, we read the command to bring in the whole tithe. And we didn't quite get to that text in what we read earlier. But the command to bring in the whole tithe does seem to suggest that the people were trying to cut corners and get out of their full responsibility. This does fit the general time frame of what we know was happening around then. Nehemiah 13, then 10 to 14, describes the problem of the people not giving portions to the Levites so that they had to work in the field. We will see in our next time that the people were under the curse and were experiencing economic hardship. As a result, they eased up on their contributions. Malachi's indictment of the people is that they robbed God of the tithes and offerings. The first word literally means tenth, though it doesn't have to be exactly 10%. But over time, the word could have taken on the meaning of something like what you owe God. Very much like the English translation tithe can refer to money that is not necessarily 10% of something. The word offerings literally is something that is raised, a traditionally the heave offering. But again, by Malachi's day, there is likely not a technical meaning in view. Uh, tithes and offerings means the money and gifts you should be giving to God. Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 29 is one of the key texts on tithing in the Old Testament. It's not the only place that talks about the practice, and there were other things Israel had to give, but this is a really crucial text when considering the topic of tithing. In Deuteronomy 14, uh, the tithe is to be done before God, and that idea is prominent in the text of Malachi. But there is something in that passage that would benefit the tither. It, it says, you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household in verse 26. Furthermore, it was to benefit the poor and the disenfranchised, and it was to benefit the Levite. This was like a mandatory party that the people were to throw. Of course, God doesn't need the food, but he desires the celebration and the worship. He desires the community bonds that would have been created. But when times were tight, like they were in Malachi's day, the people neglected this enforced partying. They hoarded their money which hurt not only themselves and the poor and the Levites, but again, in keeping with the overall theology of Malachi, 
the big problem here is not so much the loss of community or the hurt of the poor and the Levite, as real as those issues are. Instead, recall Malachi's earlier treatment of the people's problems. The real problem is theological, what this says about the person's perception of who God is. It's easy, when times are hard, to be tight-fisted. A lack of generosity, however, not only damages those who are needy around us, it not only is to the detriment of those who serve us in the things of God, it not only is harmful for the community, but it betrays a more fundamental theological problem, that we think we can rob God, that we think these resources ultimately belong to us and not to him. The people had heard that God was going to judge sorcerers and adulterers, and perhaps they looked around and said, I wonder who Malachi's talking to. But all the while, they were the thieves stealing from God. In the same way, it's easy to look around us and see the sinful practices of society around us. But has it dawned on us that we might be thieving God? Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu partner.